out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the singer-songwriter, author, music journalist. It is the one and only Paul Rowland, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love and poetry and much, much more. This is the interview. Um, and just to give you some idea, Paul has been making music since the late 70s and he's still making albums and records to this very day, as you'll find out in this interview, and also written something like 50 books, including a fantastic book on Mark Bowman. But uh, so this is the interview with Paul. So after several minutes of interest but casual chat, we get down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years. Paul, it's over to you. Yeah, well, I am... I, rem- I actually remember as a very, very small child, one of my earliest memories was being taken into a shed of um, a couple of little friends who introduced me to the Beatles, can you believe? I mean, uh, what was it? I think it was All My Loving. Um, and what that places me, I suppose, about 1964 or something like that. Of course, I wasn't a, a fan. I was a, a little, well, I wouldn't say toddler, I was a, a small child, but I remember that. And... Um, Every time I hear that music, it does take me back to that street and that time. It's very uh, amazing how how music can transport you instantly. I suppose it's like Proust's uh, Madeleines, you know, the cakes. Dip it in the tea and and you're back there immediately. But Mm. my real real sort of first, well, a number of of, of first moments, I suppose. I don't know which really counts. One was, um, I suppose, about 12 or something. And I was um, sitting in the living room of a of a friend who was going to take me to a sort of youth club or something. And Top of the Pops was on. I'd never seen Top of the Pops. And Elton John was on playing Cro- Crocodile Rock. I think that was really the first time I heard pop music as such, because my, my mother would have had Radio 2 on, you know, Housewife's Choice, when I was a kid coming home from school at lunchtime. And I'd heard all this sort of Terry Wogan and whoever the other characters were playing this, oh, I don't know, this um, Herb Alpert and all these weird... Oh, I remember The Green Leaves of Summer was one of the first things that sort of really um, affected me. It was the theme tune to The Alamo, the film right. of John Wayne, simply because it was a very um, sort of nostalgic, wistful, elegaic kind of tune. And I think that's always been a part of my own music, um, this, this, this idea that something has been lost and you're pining for it. Uh, it's a very idyllic thing. It's you know, it's, it's pure sentiment, I suppose. But anyway, that was a that idea of a, a lost battle, lost people who died for a cause. Usually, a, a, um, I don't know if it was a, well, it was a worthwhile cause, but they, they died in vain, shall we say? So that sort of sentiment and music came together very early on when I was about twelve. But yes. when I really got into pop music as a fan, I'd say would have been. Um, when I went to see That'll Be the Day and Stardust with David Essex in, when it was released, that would be about 73, 74. And I remember coming out of the cinema and, and looking up at the sky and thinking, that is, that is what I want to be, a, a rock star, which was quite a, an odd thing to say because the poor guy just died of an overdose in the film and um, he'd led a miserable life uh, in a villa in Spain all alone and had gone you know, completely uh, off his trolley. So... It wasn't actually that that appealed to me. That was a warning, I suppose, which I've heeded ever since, never taken anything stronger than rum and coke. But it was that idea of being in a recording studio. And it was the music, of course, that was featured in the film because in in the first film, That'll Be The Day, it was a very much 50s music. He worked at a fairground 
and the music struck me. This is what the this is what the key sort of impression was. The music struck me. It was highly melodic. It was very succinct. It said everything it had to say in two and a half minutes, sometimes even less. It was it was uh, usually played well, pretty much live in the studio. I didn't know that at the time, of course, but those records were. So they had a vitality. They had a strong rhythmic pulse, if you like. They gripped you. They had a hook right from the start. They probably had several other hooks um, along the way, and then they were faded out or ended pretty quick. And that sort of idea of putting music and energy and um, a whole creative into three minutes or, or actually far less two and a half minutes two two minutes even um really really made a strong impression of me on me and then the second film which um took took the character into the 60s and the 70s um struck me because uh, well there was a sort of beatlesque um uh, scene where you know he was coming up in 63 64 they were wearing the same type of outfits and there was a great song by dave edmonds who had provided the original songs for that film um, can't remember what it was, but um, that that also was that sort of very tight. Um, it was rock music. It wasn't rock and roll like the fifties ones, but it, it, it had a really strong hook. It had a strong driving rhythm, um, and everything was so um, self-contained, you know, and direct. It really, it really hit the jugular, if you like. It, it really put it, well, the Germans have a phrase for it, which is earworms. You know, it gets its hook into you and you can't forget it and it keeps going on in your head afterwards. Um, and then it went on into the psychedelic period and you had White Rabbit playing on the soundtrack. So you really got a, a musical education in, in 90 minutes, if you like. That was my first musical education. And then I remember listening to the story of pop. I don't know if you remember that on BBC Radio 1. It must have been about 73, 74. So all this was... I suppose that's where I went to next. Um, and it charted the whole story of, of, of pop and rock. Uh, I don't know, how, was it 50 minutes or whatever it was every Saturday? And I've got the magazine as well. There's a whole magazine, one of those part work things. So I immersed myself in this, in this whole exciting world, um, which brought me, I suppose, from childhood into adolescence. And um, I just had an insatiable hunger or appetite for for music after that, my friends were into um, prog rock, ELP and uh, Eric Clapton and all the rest of it. And um, so, you know, it was a great time to, uh, to be an adolescent because, yeah, I mean, I won't say tubular bells and dark side of the moon in, in the same breath and the same sentence, but, you know, he had a lot of really great albums and great artists. I, I think we were spoiled for choice, really. We didn't realise what we had, but it was our music. That was the thing, you know. Yes. So I still feel that those bands, Led Zeppelin, Yes, um, all of those bands, and, and, and the glam rock bands at the same time, I had a, quite an eclectic taste, um, were our bands, and this was our music. And I never thought that it, it wouldn't be, but obviously there came a point, and punk was the point, I think, with me, when I felt this was for the next generation, it wasn't for me, and I was ready to play my own music. And I felt that um, you couldn't put, you couldn't play an acoustic guitar though, and unless you wanted to be strung up from a lamppost. Um, so that was a bit intimidating, actually. But in, in retrospect, of course, I know those were great records. But at the time, I think I felt punk was not me, that it was, as I say, it was quite um, restricting in a way because you had to play in that fashion um, or be ignored, which is a shame because, you know, pop music sh shouldn't be 
about prejudices. It has to be, oh, you have to be an enemy or nobody's going to take you seriously, you know, flavor of the month, and then they knock you down afterwards. That whole mentality was rather off-putting, um, but I persevered anyway. And it was a very exciting time um, in the very early 80s. I made my first record in the late, late 79, but the first album I made, the first serious record I made, was in, came out in March 1980. The werewolf of london under the group name midnight rags and the point was that at that point that it was a diy movement it was just post-punk and people were well, i will not say encouraged exactly but it was very an open open season anybody could press up their own record they could record at their local studio it didn't have to be a, a, a professional studio you didn't have to get signed to a major label you could bypass all of that which is great for somebody like me who probably thought they couldn't get arrested anyway and um, I didn't want all the hassle of it either. I didn't want to get tied down to, um, you know, tour album, tour album and thing. I wanted to just write the songs I wanted to write, the songs I wanted to listen to, the records that hadn't been made, if you like, that I wanted to listen to in my own way and put them out as often or as infrequently as I wanted to with the artwork that I wanted. And then we would take them to the independent um, distributors who were there at the time, Rough Trade, um, can't remember the others. Bonaparte, I think, was in Croydon, and there was another one. And you could sell them from the boot of your car. And they would take a hundred each, you know, as long as it was competent and had some some personality and character. They would take a chance. One chap said to me, "Oh, if you'd been a heavy metal band, I would have taken two hundred copies." You know, <laughs> I mean, it was, a, it was a great period of enthusiasm where, you know, there were no restrictions. You could go and make the record you wanted, and you would find a market for it. And reviewers would review it then. They didn't. Have, have all the restrictions and the, um, the preconceptions they, they have today. And of course, there was, there was far less competition. And then, of course, you could get on to, you get played on national radio. John Peel played me. You know, that was like a lottery. You sent your record in, or in my case, I took it in to him. And you could even talk to these people. You know, they weren't that aloof. I think you always thought the radio one DJs, you know, would only, wouldn't talk to the, the hoi polloi. But you could get through to people like Peel. Um, I think there was also Peter Powell. There's Alan Freeman, I remember. Alan Fluff, Fluff oh, Freeman. Yes. Yeah, they were great people. Um, and Johnny Walker, which was my favourite, a wonderful voice. And um, you felt these, were se- that these guys were serious, you know, about music. And if they uh, played you, you got, you were, you know, that was your endorsement. That was your Oscar, you know, that you were accepted as a real musician, even though you were, you know, the boy next door making an album in his local record store. It was only the people, the, the DJs during the daytime, um, you know, I can't remember, Tony Blackburn, all these characters who were sort of in, in this ebony tower and you'd never get to them unless you had a plugger and all the rest of it. But that was great because that meant we could, you know, we had a door in our, our, our little scruffs. We could we could get through the the doors of uh, whatever it's called, Broadcasting House and get our records on the air. And if you got your records on air, there's a chance, you know, things would then happen. But I think from... My personal point of view, once my stuff was played on the air, nobody knew what to do with it. People said later, oh, yeah, I heard you on John Peel 30 years ago, and I've, I've loved it ever since, but I couldn't find your record, and I couldn't find out who it was, you know, <laughs> even though he did, of course, announce it. So yes. um, it was it was a, quite a remarkable time, and I think that, even though that's long gone, that enthusiasm I've still maintained, and it's got me through some sort of, um, what do you say, hiatus, you know, a, a point when there was not much happening, you know. And, and kept me going. I just have to believe, like I think a lot of independent, and I'm an independent 
or niche, as they call me, if they don't want to call me a, a cult, um, C-A-U-L-T, cult, um, they also, um, you know, you've, you've, got to, you've got to feel that, or believe that, that what you do matters. I think this matters for any artist. And forget about the facts, how many records you sold last week as opposed to how many you sold five years ago or whatever, or that you didn't get reviews. You've got to think that what you do matters and you can't um, reach everybody who likes your music, but if you get enough people responding, you can imagine that they're only a percentage, they're only a, um, uh, what do you call it, uh, you know, a, a, a sample of the people who, who like your stuff. So you sort of live in this, I wouldn't say fantasy world exactly, but you live in this world, you have to, otherwise you'd give up. You know, there's too many um, things putting you off. And you just keep, dare I say, KBO, you know, as Churchill said, you keep going. And um, you make the records that are fun to make, you write the songs that are fun to make, and, and then hopefully you get some people um, that can help you, you know, who know what they're doing, uh, whether they're fans with some business contacts or whether they're... Uh, you know, serious sort of labels or what have you. And you just go from one to the other as they close down. This, this is just like, <laughs> especially when you, you know, you discover this as you, if you're going as long as I have been. Um, so I don't know what I originally thought. I think I probably thought I was going to be this rock star like in David Essex. But very soon, I think I realized after I'd been through the, you know, the, the disappointments of, of being promised this by a major label and that by management or whatever, that I was going to end up going alone. And now, in retrospect, only now do I realise that was that was the best thing that could have happened to me. Yes, absolutely. It's interesting you mentioned those two films, um, That Will Be the Day in Stardust, because they had mm. a huge impact on me as well. Oh. And I, I thought, you know, they they were stunning. They just summed up yes. that kind of the chapter one, you know, the sort of early years, the honeymoon period, mm. you know, making it with your David Essex, Ringo. I think Adam Faith was in it as well. And then That's the second true. one when the Keith drugs... Moon, don't forget. Keith Moon, absolutely. And then the second one with Larry Hagman, who oh, yes. uh, was the manager. And then that kind of the big performance where he's he's doing this kind of rock opera, rock mm. experience, you know, event, and everyone's wondering if he's going to die. So I thought I thought that captured everything so brilliantly. And I did listen one evening. I was um, loved listening to interviews from the 80s, 70s, especially because they're kind yeah. of fascinating. And David Essex, I did listen to David Essex talking around that time and saying oh. how much that took it out of him, that film, you know, getting oh. into character. And it was quite an interesting story because it took me years to find it because um, it's not available on DVD. Oh, it all. is now. Oh, oh yeah. is it? But it was on Talking Pictures, that weird little oh. channel that appears and it plays all these old films that you think, mm. and then it was like, oh, brilliant. And I managed to record them. And, and I just think they're fantastic. The, fe yes. the sort of early years at school, throwing your books in the river and then sort of going off, going to the fairground, getting, yes, letting Ringo get beat up and walking away in his kind of selfish way. And all those little scribbling as he's writing his stories or poems, isn't he? So yeah, Of course, um, it was written by Ray Connolly, who, who was a, a journalist at the time of the Beatles in the 60s. And everything. So he had first-hand experience I interviewed him for a Mark Bowlen biography I'd written and I asked him about this and he said you know it wasn't based on any one particular person it, obviously it was a composite um but they were experiences that he could draw upon and that's why it was so authentic I, th I just thought it was brilliantly put together and wasn't it directed was it David Putnam I think who directed it everything came together there absolutely beautifully and it it, it captured the era which I hadn't lived lived through I mean not the uh, the 50s and um 
but you felt, you know, that that's what it was like in, in Britain in the 50s. You know, it's quite different. I mean, obviously, if you want America, you go to um, American Graffiti and so on. But, mm, but I think yes. it, I think it captured it brilliantly. And the, the sort of sordid seaside digs that he was in and yes. helping in his mother's shop and all this sort of thing. And as you say, that the, the school that he, you know, he, on the eve of his um, exams. of his exams, he threw his books in the river and went off to work in the fairground, you know, and, and yes. scrambled up the, the greasy pole somehow and had all the breaks. And, and of course, he was also very ruthless, you know, getting rid of his band members or whatever. I can't remember all the different things that happened. It, it was so, so, um, so well put together. Yes. Really. And, did, and with your childhood, did your parents... Um, give you much influence in life? Were they quite a, a, a you know, because most people, especially that generation, your generation and slightly mine, I suppose, they mm. were, you know, quite yeah, very working class. So it was just mm. a matter of just working as much as you can to make ends meet. Really. I think that's that's true. Mine were very supportive, but they, they felt that if I had brains, I ought to, um, well, they put me into an advertising agency, which was absolutely the wrong thing for me in Soho in London when I was about 19. And that was a complete disaster. I got fired from that. Went to work for a, a magazine shop uh, in the West End, which sold all these um, uh, film and, and music newspapers, you know, the NME and all that from the 60s and 70s. So I managed to get hold of all these Mark Boland interviews and things from the period when I was too young to have read the music press and put them in my my first book, the Boland biography I talked about. But um, yeah, my my, my, parent, well, my my father has no ear for music, as he keeps telling me, but he was a writer, uh, not by profession. So he, I think he gave me my um, ability with words, my facility with words. And my mother was an actress and very much uh, a music lover. So she gave me the, the musical part. I think the two parts together, plus she was, as I said, an actress. So the whole thing of being a performer, entertaining people, um, and telling stories through music mm. was a combination of of their genes, but not their influence. I mean, they, they didn't um, actively encourage me. They didn't give me piano, take me to piano lessons or anything like that. So it wasn't an active thing. They were simply supporting me, but also, uh, to be fair, quite quite sort of critical because I was an academic failure. I, mean, I was very right. good at English, and that was it. So I did feel that I was a bit of a disappointment. And it was only after I'd written fifty books. That they um, they decided that I actually had achieved something. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that was, that was good of them. Yeah, because actually it's funny you mentioned about radio too, because that was my one of my memories of being mm. a small boy with my mum at home when she did all the you know the washing. Washing was a big mm. thing. You had the twin tub washing machine in the kitchen, and that was a big moment. And I do remember radio too and listening to Jimmy Young in the afternoon with this mm. little thing called "What's the recipe today?" Jimmy. Oh, that's mom, right. Yes, my mum would be scribbling down on bits of paper this recipe that she would put in the cupboard <laughs> and never and never make. But it was just like quite a ritual. But I do remember that Radio Two music quite well, ish. Mm. You know, I, you know, and I do remember being very influenced by the Carpenters and the lyrics of the Carpenters, which mm. I still think are profound and amazing. Yeah, I know they didn't write them, but then I had a brother who was seven years older than me, and he was really into prog rock, so uh. he had the Yes, Genesis, Wishbone Ash, Barclay James Harvest albums, mm. you know, the um, Mike Oldfield. But it, it was kind of things like Yellow Goodbye, Yellow Brick Road and Sergeant Pepper. This must have been like 73, 74. So mm -hmm. culturally, you know, the Beatles had only just broke up and there was no kind yes. of, wow, this is an amazing album. It was just well, like, they were a historical thing to me. They were not uh, a, a reality, if you like. They didn't come into my, my um, what do you call it, my view, my ears 
um, they weren't an option at the time. To me, uh, what was going on, what was in, um, I think they called Disco Music Echo and, and magazine, uh, music papers like that, it was status quo. It was, uh, dare I say, Alvin Stardust, and the unmentionable Mr. G that we talked about, uh, yes. but also, you know, ELP. Black Sabbath, I was quite into. I was quite into heavy bands actually. Uh, very quickly after after glam, I wasn't so yes. much a Bowie fan. I was a I was an ardent Boland fan. I've, I, I must confess, even though he he slipped rapidly. But his early uh, albums, particularly the acoustic ones, I found absolutely magical, and have remained a, a prime influence on me. Um, at the time. And I was reading his lyrics as six formers do. Oh, I didn't get to the six form, but as six formers do, uh, you know, as profound poetry. And only later, when I um, was writing about his lyrics critically, that I, I saw that there wasn't really much in them. There were really a lot of um, collages, sound collages of, of, of words that sounded good to him, all mashed together, but they didn't yes. make much sense. But at the time, it seemed absolutely, you know, pro profound. Yeah. So. <laughs> Well, I love I love the kind of John Peel's Perfume Garden. Listen to mm. you know them sort of John talking about you know Mark and his his love of Mark in that acoustic period when my when my people were fair and had stars mm. in their hair and I all that it. kind of malarkey. His his <laughs> 70, 76 album wasn't so good. But the strange thing about the Beatles, though they'd only just split up when you think about it, about mm. three years, two yeah. three years at the most, mm. it seemed like a completely different world and a completely that had gone. And and as you mentioned, well, because because we were children, you see, to us, three years before was history. Yes, I mean that's the, that's the joke, really. Now you look at. I sometimes think back, oh, you know, 10 years ago, I'd be, or an album has been sitting on the shelf for three years. Well, you know, to me, that's that's too long. But when you think, as you say, about something when you're a child, a few, a few years ago was, well, that's my dad's music almost, you know? I mean, really, yes. it's quite remarkable, isn't it? Didn't, I didn't relate to it at all, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, no, it's, and, and, and as, as, as you, I think, sort of alluded to, and certainly something that I've noticed is that I think every, this is my theory, anyway, mm. every five years there's this kind of new wave of 16-year-olds yeah, right. that come in and they want mm. their kind of band. They yeah. want to discover that band, that artist. That's right. And they, you know, somebody who's been around for a few years and has, has done well, the, say, done, you know, it's a bit like you want to discover it. And I think mm. that 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 kind of excitement of 16 and I know Lemmy and Mo and David Bowie who were born in the same year both mm. would always say Little Richard was their kind of big kind of go-to mm -hmm. person then they mentioned all the usual Elvis mm. and Eddie Cochran and Buddy Holly but again you know you can't as as Lemmy always said you can't you know being sick that only happens once that moment and that's yeah. it you know that oh matter. no no I sorry I, I must disagree there because I don't know other people feel this way but I've had those those peak moments many times since I mean, I just I, I got into rap. I got uh, well, Snoop Dogg and, and all these people, and I felt the same way. I was just as excited as when I heard Bolan or whoever for the first time, and I could go back, uh, trace back further and, and pick out all sorts of. Oh, I remember Suede. First time I heard Suede. The first time I heard the Smiths. Um, yes. And there's probably a number of oh Muse. You know, the, oh Ramstein. Another one. You see, there's there's four already. <laughs> I don't know over what what, what period we're, we're talking about between the eighties and what two thousand or something. So it's okay, it's twenty years. Brit pop, yes. Yeah, you, but you... I, yeah, but 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 you see that I think that's that's absolutely um, essential that you retain that enthusiasm, that childlike, if you want to call it, enthusiasm for new things. Otherwise, you know, well. Who wants to grow old? You know, I mean, there's ways of growing old. There's the physical, but there's also the mental and the emotional. 
and I'm in complete denial of it. To, to me, this, um, you know, I bet that I've discovered somebody else in six months' time, and I'll be just as enthusiastic. And and who's to say I shouldn't be? You know. No. Yeah. That that's that is good. Why do but we think... put these limitations on it on ourselves and these expectations? Well, I'm I'm too old. I can't get into into pop music. I mean, my my children who are now in their twenties, they thought it was funny that I was listening to um, uh, Fat Boy Slim and, and stuff like that in in the car. But I'm thinking, well, this is great. Can't you hear? This is great. Listen, listen to the the drum tracks. Listen to the the lyrics listen to all this different and the cleverness of how they put things in. Now, somebody else would say, well, I'm I'm X years old. This isn't for me. And they shut it out because they're not listening. But I think if you listen to anything, I mean, I got into Marla in the same way and, 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 and Richard Strauss. When I didn't, I don't know, we're going off the point slightly, but um, I thought, well, Richard Strauss is an important composer. Why don't I get this music? Tens of thousands of people love this. Why don't I get it? So what I did was I... I put on the first part of Salome, and I listened to the first 10 minutes five times in a row. And by the fifth time, I got it. And I think I think that's the key. You have to persist. I did the same thing with Benjamin Britten, though to not such a, a good result. And what you, and what, you, about, what hmm. about in the Incredible String Band? Because that's one of those bands that I would love to love and like. But every time, I, every five years, I'll play The Hangman's hmm. Beautiful Daughter and still think, hmm. no, I can't bear it. I feel exactly the same. Now, people have said to me, if you like Tyrannosaurus Rex, you must love the Incredible String Band because they're virtually the same. No, they're not the same. These were funny little Scottish folk people. And um, however marvellous their songs might be, it just, it didn't, it didn't, uh, I wouldn't say it didn't ring true because obviously they were very into it and very genuine. And they'd researched all their music and all the rest of it. And they lived the life, didn't they? Sort of nomadic, Romanesque yes. life. But it just didn't appeal to me. You know, I'd rather hear Gene Vincent or... Uh, or a wolf, uh, howling wolf, or something. So, you know, you can't, you can't persuade people. You can't sell something to people who don't, who just don't want to buy it. Yeah. No, no. I, I also there was also pet sounds that I still don't quite appreciate. So, mm. there you go. That's my failing. But look, seventy nine, interesting period because you mentioned punk being a bit tricky. And Richard Strange from the Doctors of Madness said the same thing that he was like two years, three years too early for punk, but everybody in the audience went in and formed a punk band and he felt a bit like an old man who'd missed mm. the party really. So, but then 79, you know, Margaret Thatcher gets into power. So there's suddenly this kind of conservative government. Then the eighties, we have the Falkland mm. War, then we have the miners' strike, there's Green mm. and Common, um, you know, eventually there's Red Wedge. So, so it's all sort of slightly kicking off, isn't it? What was it like then? Because this is when your kind of musical journey really starts, isn't it, at this period? Well, my, my, as, as I said, my, my first recording profession, well, my, my first attempt was in very late uh, 79. And then my, my first album at the very end of 79 released in March 80. But after that, I took a three year break because... Um, I came up with some songs that the, the guy at the studio who was financing the release um, didn't like. I think it was a bad day for him and he took it out on me and I was completely demoralized. I was completely crushed. This was about 81, I think, 82. I'd, I'd been managed. I can't remember now. I'm a bit confused. <laughs> um, but anyway, I, I was completely crushed and I gave up for three years and I didn't play the guitar or anything. And I just came back, I was listening to classical music and stuff, but I didn't really like it. I was doing it because I felt, you know, um, to distract myself, I suppose, more than anything else. And maybe I'd like it. And I'd, it didn't make much impression on me at the time. And uh, I went into music journalism. I wrote for Sounds and I wrote for Kerrang! 
I interviewed Lemmy and other people, and, I, and a lot of my heroes are Ian Anderson of Jethro Tull. So I found that I could satisfy my creative urge, if you like, by reviewing records and, and movies. Oh, yes, I was writing for video magazines at the time as well, and interviewing people. And so, you know, that was my compensation. I, I, got, I got through that. And then I, I, I was persuaded or I just felt um, there's, a, there's an album that I hadn't released that was half recorded. I could write some new songs. I could use those ones and put it all together and put out a mini album, which was quite um, fashionable at the time. I don't know if you remember that, but eight track yes. mini albums were de rigueur or whatever the word is um, <laughs> at the time. And it was OK to do them. I think it's another word for it. <laughs> and um, I got back into it. I went back to the label I'd been, but the guy had left and his partner was doing it under a different name and so on. And I, f I felt it was, um, it was very difficult. I was only outside trying to get back inside. And that, that, that took a lot of sort of um, perseverance just to, to keep going. But then things improved very quickly. I did a, um, a mini album after that called Burnt Orchids, which was basically when I found my voice. This was 1985. Yes. And so just after the period you were just talking about. And I what I basically did was I said, if I'm not going to make it, and it looks like I'm not going to make it, what would I like to do for my own pleasure? Not to try to, you know, have success or please people or find an audience. And I thought, well, I, I'd like to do this sort of Victorian, Edwardian acoustic chamber music with some strings and stuff and, and weird little story, ghost stories. And I was into horror movies at the time and stuff. And, and horror comics, I remember. So I basically, uh, without, I invented myself, but without knowing that I was doing so, I simply said, what do I love? And what do I want to do? And I'll do these things for my own amusement almost. And then I recorded them. And I think that's, you know, if you can, that's that's a, a great um, uh, sort of modus operandi. Yeah. And that, that was the thing that actually captured people's imagination. And I had um, the whole Peel thing, I think, was more or less over by then, or at least I felt there was no point approaching these same people. I don't know why I did that, but I decided not. And I got taken up by labels abroad. Basically, what happened was that fanzines discovered me and they got enthusiastic and they uh, uh, took took my music to the labels in their country and, and said, you've got to listen to them, you've got to release this stuff. And when they released it, they also organized little tours and things. And that's when it all picked up. Yes. So, Were you big in Italy, by the way? Uh, well, I'm only five foot four, so I was never big anywhere. But uh, yes, I had an audience. I'll say I'll, I had an audience in Italy. I had an audience in Greece, which was a great surprise to me. This, this started, I think, about 87 in Greece. Yes, because I, I did um, an interview with a guy from Shelley Ann Orphan. And that oh, turned, yes. And that turned out that Italy loved him and, and somebody's kind of... Well, I know much. him, yes, because he was using the same... He's been using the same studio as I am at the moment. Yes. So we're, we're looking to do something together. We're very hopeful about that. But yeah, I'm, I'm on the same label that yeah. he's he's found over there. So there's a, there's a thriving um, sort of um, scene over there, if you want to use. And that's the funny thing you see about about abroad. People used to be very denigrating about um, abroad. They say, well, you know, of course they're big in Italy or they're big in Albania or something like Norman Wisdom, you know, because because they're no good really at all. But people over there were like that's not true at all the people in other countries tend i've i've found to make up their own minds about what they like over here in england unfortunately a lot of them say well if it's not in 
you know, NME or who, whatever it is at the moment, you know, M or Q, or whatever it is, then, you know, it can't be any good. Yeah, um, well, I, but I, I, I think the first time I ever come across that was decades ago with the Wurzels, and I think apparently they were really big in Australia, and they went, actually, we're just going all going to move to Australia because they love us there, and um, yeah. and that was the first time, but that was a long time. But then doing this in doing this show, then I've heard people say, well, I've, I don't bother with the UK. I think it was Swing Out yeah. Sister as well released albums in Japan and said, well, mm. we're not going to bother with England because it's just not. It's just no point. And mm. um, yeah, so it's interesting that certain countries, not just Europe, but just certain yeah. countries will pick up on an artist and they become this, like the Sugar Man, the film well, Sugar Man. You know, it's yeah, like, well, yeah, you know. But don't forget, you see, the other thing that a lot of people don't realise is that in the other countries, um, municipalities um, subsidise uh, um, cultural events, which is not a thing that happens over here. Over here, the band is pretty much on its own, unless it's got a manager, label, blah, blah, blah. And you go to, you know, you play a gig in a pub and, you know, it's all this, uh, you, you know, you get 50 quid or whatever. I don't know. It's, it's all hassle. That mm. I don't need faith. Over there, somebody invites you. They put up huge posters. They hire a, a really nice venue. They fill the venue with people. Sometimes they don't charge them any money. Well, who cares? As long as they're there and they don't walk out and they really like it. You know, I mean, they're genuine. They're genuine audience. They're just people walking in off the street when I say that uh, yes. they don't charge it. You know, and so it's a completely different cultural environment it's very welcoming it's very encouraging i mean they they, they offer a studio in, in my case and um, musicians you know I, over here i'm hiring a studio i'm paying the musicians over there everything's provided and with great respect yeah, i think over here um you i don't know everybody seems to be in a band and you have this cynicism all the time and, and it the audience is come on impress me you know, yeah. that's the at least that's the attitude I had at the beginning. I mean, I may be completely wrong because I, when I first started playing gigs in the late eighties with a with a uh, viola player, an electric viola player, and I was playing acoustic all things. Um, it, we were playing with a band called the Dentists, who were in, in Kent. They were sort of a the Medway scene. Medway, that's right. You know them, all right. I did and, an interview with two of them last week. Oh, all right. Well, they are. I mean, uh, yeah, we, Bob we, and we Mark. support. Uh, we've put, supported them. It was arranged by a, a magazine called Bucket Full of Brains, you might have heard of. Mm. And um, so, you know, oh, and that's the other thing, of course, is, is abroad, they, they organise the tours. They, they do everything, you know, and you just get on the plane and fly there. So why would you want to play in the UK if if you have to organise everything yourself, if you have to put up with a lot of, um, you know, well, whatever, tr problems? Over there, everything is, is on a plate. It's well organised. Everybody is delighted that you bothered to come and perform in front of them, you know, and then you get reviews in the in the papers and so on and so forth. And of course, if you don't go, you don't get any reviews and don't get any interviews, even if they love your record, unless you go there and you're on the spot. There's no point in putting in the newspaper because, you know, you're not there among them. So you have to make the effort. But, you know, if, if, then you're... Um, Yes. You have the, the the dream is real. I actually um, uh, composed and recorded a, a gothic ballet, Nosferatu, because I knew that basically anything I came up with, they would realise, and they did. They hired the venue, they got all the people in, they found the dancers, and you know, within next months, my ballet was being my gothic ballet was being performed in Italy. Now you try and do that in England, people will say, well, "What's your?" Um, 
what's your experience in this field, sir? And um, you do realize how many thousands you're going to have to put up to subsidize the production, blah, 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 you know? And why should we put all this time into the dancers? Um, we, you know, you're not going to pay us. Over there, they say, great, a ballet or an event or whatever it is. Um, when do you want us to turn up? And we'll, <laughs> we'll do it if they like it. I mean, that's the point. If you've got the material, if they respect you, if they like what you're doing, people will 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 bother themselves will put themselves out and and your your um dreams will be realized you know right in front of you but don't expect to sell you know 10,000 records or something and i think yeah. if you take it on those those uh terms um you can have a you can keep going you know yes well I, what, I do remember and and you know this is after you spoke to lemmy but he did say that it was germany that kept the band going during oh. those those years when nobody wanted to know them in the UK. Oh. So it was kind of the German market that was, you know, loyal fans. I think they're much more loyal um, generally abroad than they are in the UK. We're very fickle, yeah. aren't we, as, as no, I think that's what I was trying to say in a nutshell. But, but it took me 10 minutes to <laughs> get around it. But interesting that you didn't get, you know, you know, because there were a few kind of uh, intense, angry poets at that stage, didn't they? This sort of the late 70s, early 80s. And there was a, an acoustic You mean guitar. John Cooper Clark and the rest of them? And Billy Bragg, uh, Attila, Attila the stockbroker, and then it was, oh, yeah. was it Patrick Fitzgerald who did Safety Pin Through My Heart? I don't and know. those sort of songs. I just, yes, because you were a singer, you know, an acoustic singer songwriter. But then mm. just you mentioned John Peel and the, and the delight. And I think the thing with John Peel was that he, and I must admit, you know, he was my beacon that I went to because mm. he would just kind of, you know, listen. It felt to me he listened to every genre of music yes. and then would just bring Absolutely. the best. So yeah. when you know that thing about being sixteen, I do, I do realize actually that is a bit of a sweeping statement because then he introduced me to you know Public Enemy, he introduced me to the Bundu Boys, he introduced me to sort of Bulgarian folk music that mm. I absolutely was mesmerized by, and reggae, yeah, you know, all this stuff this. like oh, yeah. Gregory Isaacson, Augustus Pablo, as well as all the indie pop stuff that mm. you know, and and sort of thrash stuff like Sonic, you know, like Sonic Youth and people. So. Yeah, you know, he, he did, as John Walters once said, you know, when John Peel gets to puberty, we're all in trouble because <laughs> he kept that kind of youthful kind of excitement, yes, that 70 thing, which I yeah. think is true. But then, you know, just as the 80s, you know, for me, 83 to 87, the mm. years of the Smiths, massive moment, really, in our musical history. And they they sort of spoke to me in deeply. And um, yeah, so what was it like? So you, you really, you know, you get on a creative role in, in this period, don't you? And you release an albums almost yearly at one Well, stage. I thought that was the thing. That was the thing to do. You see, I, my model was always back to Mark Bolan, who released an album every year. Well, most of the glam rock artists did, if not two, in fact, and three or four singles a year. You know, and um, that was just the way um, that I, I thought you you did it if you were in music seriously. Um, and it was no trouble to me. I just sit down and, and write songs over a two week period, and when I got enough uh i went into the studio and recorded them all that's why i didn't have a lot of uh unreleased stuff left over you know i would write um a, a batch of songs and i'd go and record them uh, which is why my first album was a bit too diverse but later on i settled them and found my voice so what was it actually like well i was still writing for the music press at the time um so i sort of saw the other side of things um i remember i went to to wembley arena to see ozzy and Backstage, I, I told him about myself and asked for his advice. And he said, well, stay away from bloody record companies. And uh, <laughs> I realized that was the best piece of advice I ever had, actually, because they would have imposed all sorts of things. Plus, they'd have held the 
the tapes, the copyright, and I wouldn't have been able to release stuff later if they've messed it up. So I've stayed independent um, because of that. But yes. I'm, I met a, I'm sorry, I met a lot of um, um, artists. Some of them are quite obnoxious. I won't, I won't name them. Uh, others I found very modest. Pete Wiley, I remember, was a, an exceptionally, uh, dare I say, sweet man. And so was Mick Hucknall, Simply Red. I remember, see, I remember these, when, when people are particularly genuine and natural, and you feel there's no edge to them. Um, you remember them, you know, and the and that, that sort of struck me as uh, you don't have to be hard, you know, to be to be in the music business. You don't have to be completely self-centered like um, some unmentionable people I, I mentioned. Uh, <laughs> and um, so, so I was I was still recording at small studios then and, and self-financing everything. But I, by the time we got to the end of the eighties. I had a number of labels in different countries. I had New Rose in France. I had Diva in Italy. I had Didi Music in Greece and Pastel in Germany. So I felt, wow, you know, it couldn't be better. Um, and they all sold quite reasonable quantities. But then it became quite obvious that they were sort of competing with each other to sell the same album. And that wasn't too clever. Um, obviously, not being you know, working for a record company or anything, I wouldn't know these sort of things, but I, it became a bit of an education for me, a rather hard education. They said, you know, the other label only has to release this three days before we do, and we're sunk, you know. Mm -hmm. What are you doing to us, Paul? Please get... So that's why I recorded so many albums, because one label would have one album, another one would have a different album, and I didn't have that problem. <laughs> but things would, just, things would just flow out of me. So, you see, if I was happy and, and felt there was an, a demand, I would fulfill that demand. I don't mean I would write stuff just you know to feel the to be productive i would write stuff that i love and was up to my standard and you know i had yes. there was no question about it. but but i could write you know lots of material if i felt there was there was a real genuine um uh need for it and, and people would put it out and this is what this italian situation is doing for me at the moment and has for the last sort of five or six years um just the feeling that wow somebody likes me and 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 they respect what I do, and they think it's different. And this is the other thing I, I said to Andy Ellison, of uh, who used to be in John's Children with Mark Boland, and later with uh, had his own band, Radio Stars. Um, I said to him, "But there's so many, um, you know, girls with with these, um, you know, loop, loop loopers and stuff, or tens of thousands. If you look on Bandcamp or CD Baby or wherever, you know, it's very demoralising." And he said, "Yes, but most of them sound the same." And that hadn't occurred to me. There are, there's, there's, everybody thinks they can write just like everybody thinks they can write, you know, like J.K. Rowling or something. So you have everybody and his grandma s submitting novels, fantasy novels to publishers. But that doesn't mean that they're all, you know, publishable. And the same with, with music. There's, everybody thinks they can write songs. And every, dare I say, 12-year-old girl um, thinks you know, she's the next um, Dido or what have you, you know. But um, yes. shows, shows how dated I am. But anyway... Um, you it know, would, it would be Billie Eilish now. Well, it could be, yeah. Uh, there's some other names I know, but off the top of my tongue. Um, you know, so, so the, uh, I think that's what people don't realize that it's easy to make um, competent music and pass the, you know, the, the A&R guy. And, and especially, you know, if you're young and pretty and all the rest of it, you, that's half the battle, dare I say, um, says old Mr. Cynic. But um, it's true. But the point is, if you want to have longevity and if you want to produce something that is has 
or dare I say merit or you have to have your own voice. You have to have personality. You have to have character. So what I did, and it wasn't deliberate, just as I said, what I wanted to do, was I invented my own world and I dip into that whenever I'm looking for material and characters because I've created a world, uh, whether it's the Regency period, the Victorian period, it's a historical, it has a supernatural element, um, which is pretty inexhaustible as a source of material. And then, of course, there's the great, um, works of fiction which you can draw on if you want to so this for instance the ballet um was based on Nosferatu by well it was Dracula by Bram Stoker but um I called it Nosferatu to relate more to the, the great silent movie of the same name um mm. which was a rip-off of course of Dracula but um you know the, you, you can there's a wealth of material out there and people seem to be artists particularly at the moment seem to be purely uh, drawing inspiration from from their own feelings, which is fine because we all share these feelings, but it, I think it becomes terribly monotonous and people don't always want to hear what the girl next door is feeling and how despairing she is and what have you, because it, it's quite contrived and it's also, it's, um, it's just going around in a, in a little whirlpool of despair and you don't really always want to put on music to be dragged down or to even empathize with somebody else. We have enough of that, seeing things on the news. I want to go back to, for example, you know, that'll be the day Stardust, when you put music on because it was, you could dance to it or because, you know, it, 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 uh, it elevated you, it, it excited you, you know, it thrilled you. I mean, look at, as you say, um, Little Richard, and all, these things were exuberant. They were mm. full of life, full of vitality, and they were full of that person's personality, which was, it was um, incomparable. You know, they were they were all characters, Jerry Lee Lewis, um, uh, Little Richard, all the rest of them. I mean, even when you get, well, look at Bowie and all these people, they were huge because they were so different. I mean, even, even Lemmy and Motorhead, you know, they weren't a straightforward metal band, you know, especially as he came from Hawkwind and he, you know, he was into rock and roll. So... It wasn't the plodding Neanderthal type bone crunching riffs, even though he did plenty of great ones. Those songs were great, killed by death, and everything. that showed a wry sense of humor. That mm. is not somebody sitting in their bedroom with a looper moaning about how how terrible the world is. We know that, yeah. And I, I don't really want to have that with music. I can have it without music on the news if I want to, and I, I choose not to. I mean, that's my own. Uh, particular perspective but if you want me to explain how how you keep going when all the world doesn't give a damn that that's the answer because i've found something that i feel is different and, and that some people who share that that feeling um respond to so i have people new people coming all the time to my facebook page and bank camp and i have the older people who are still coming and they tell me this they heard my first record 30 40 years ago and they still like it so it's they wouldn't do that if I was recycling the same things all the time. I've, yes. So even though I've, I've got my distinctive voice, I'm finding new angles, I'm finding new characters, new stories to tell, and new ways in which to tell these stories, like with the ballet or what have you. And that's where you, and I've, the most recent thing I've done, I don't know if you've heard of the ghost stories of M.R. James, but he was a famous English ghost story writer. And I've set his short stories to music by creating what I call extended songs. So instead of three minutes, which I still think is the great, um, you know, formula, or whatever. They're now 
10 minutes or something, but they're in three, two or three minute segments stuck together telling a short story and giving all the, um, all the characters, all the incidents. Because I've developed, because I can't stand still, I can't keep doing that same three minute thing all yes. the time. Anybody would develop. And then I've learned to orchestrate it and so on. So I've, I've, I've crossed over into this sort of twilight zone between music and fiction, if you like. And I think that's an exciting and interesting development and something I can continue to go uh, to work on as I get older. Because I think you have to, if, you, if, you, if you're Johnny Rotten and you're still writing two, three minute songs to try and recapture your youth, and I'm not saying he is doing that, I'm saying if you were that type of person, you couldn't let go of the, the great period in your life when you were famous, you know. I think yes. that's, that's, that's a problem. Not, it's not a problem that somebody's still writing songs and music um, when they're in their 50s or 60s. If they're good and if they're different and if you're developing, but if you're still writing the sort of things, you may as well be playing Butlins in a, in a tribute band or a revival band, you know, like you get um, people playing their old hits from 30, 40 years ago to the, to the um, cabaret audience. I think that's the sad thing. I mean, it's, it's fine, you know, if they like it and the audience likes it. But I think if you want to be uh, a real vital artist, you have to justify your continuing to do this by going into other areas and yet still remaining yourself. Yes. How did you, I mean, it's kind of interesting because your day job or probably night job, you know, listening to Tommy Vance and, and that hair metal period of, mm. of heavy metal. I mean, it was such a, because I loved, you know, you mentioned Black Sabbath and Deep Purple, mm. which were, my brother had, two of those albums which I used to love only two <laughs> yeah I don't know why but he was much more into prog and the solo mm. work of Rick oh, Wakeman well. but then he had you know I think it was burned by Deep Purple and mm. a compilation of Black Sabbath material which were just stunning and and so yes. that was kind of it and then I love Motorhead but funny mm. enough most heavy metal I don't, I'm not that keen on but that that's that's basically it but you would have had to embrace that world that was you know, Twisted Sister, you know, and, well, that's and why. Bon Jovi. And, and Oh, no, please stop there. <laughs> no, no, stop. <laughs> now, that's why I stopped writing for, for Kerrang. Um, they wanted me to go to all these gigs. And I really, when I thought about it, I, did, I honestly had no interest in these bands. Yes, I loved Ozzy and and some of those, um, you know, the, the major bands. But the others, the posers and the... Um, I remember Saxon, I think, I mean, they were quite good, but, you know, I, I just felt it was, a lot of it was just, uh, they were going through the motions and the music wasn't particularly original. And uh, again, they were very competent and very technically accomplished. They were excellent musicians, but, but to, you know, to make a great record, you've really got to have, you've got to have songs. There's no way around it. Getting great riffs and things together will only carry you so far. And you need to have songs that have to have an idea. That's to be a core idea, or you're conjuring up a scene, or you're depicting a character in very sharp focus, you know, because otherwise you're you're talking about girls and cars and you know what it's like to be a teenager. And we've had all this so many times. That's what I'm, I'm really saying. You know, it's you've got to find your own voice and and uh, and offer something to people they haven't heard a hundred times already, and that they feel. They feel, um, you know, thrilled by to hear, wow, this is exciting. They've got to feel like it's the first time they've heard this kind of music. I think that's yes. that's the key. 
And did you, I mean, as we, as, as one delves into that kind of gothic romanticism and sort of, I suppose, some sort of neo-folk world, did you ever sort of find yourself slipping into some sort of strange scenes that sometimes <laughs> felt a bit uncomfortable? No. What do you mean by that? <laughs> well, there's a few, you know, there's, you know, the, the I, I suppose. Getting a bit the, fey, do you mean like Donovan? No, not fey, uh, quite the opposite, really. I was thinking more... There's people, there was, a, there was a sort of, I suppose, the green movement, you know, there was kind of, you know, the far right sometimes could really capture these kind of ideas of kind of, of a pastoral, pastoral past that sometimes led to some slightly dark and, and strange kind of ideas of life, I suppose. You know, you know, getting into black magic. Oh God, you shouldn't say black magic. But you know, Alistair Crowley. Did you ever sort of get tempted into any of those kind of? Well, I, I'm I've always been fascinated by the occult because I've had my own personal psychic and paranormal experiences, and I've written about them in my books. But when I tend to write up, draw on them for songs, they tend to get more whimsical. You can't take that too seriously because it becomes. It's like this this emotional thing I was talking about. You 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 get too serious and you become as preachy, you know. So it's it's I found it easier um, and easier to write and easier to perform and more natural to me if I took it very tongue in cheek. The occult. So mm. I'd have a dig at Alistair Crowley. I'd make fun of uh, Montague uh, Summers and all these because they were larger than life characters. A lot of them were charlatans. They were had huge egos and you know they really needed a good, a good kicking musically speaking so i found that um, a good material good source material irresistible in fact um but as far as the, i mean the far right and the, and pastoral never were two words that never came together in my mind the far right were bullies uh, violent um racist and that's all they ever have been and very stupid um people so how you and I know what you're saying because there's I think there's bands like Current 93 you're probably thinking of who um and I was lumped in in a, in a, a compilation called uh, the Neo Folk Compendium or something where a lot of these bands like Current 93 I can't remember the others um who were alleged to have um uh, far right sympathies but you know I was embarrassed to be amongst them uh, right. because because I've always written about uh, meditation and um, Kabbalah, which is a, a mystical tradition, all about enlightenment, all about developing and growing and becoming aware of who we really are and all the significance of dreams and all the rest of it. Um, so uh, any far right people are the absolute opposite of, me, of the, uh, as is Crowley, the people who are egomaniacs is the opposite of what you want to be if you want to be enlightened. And you share, you should be sharing and teaching people, not um, uh, trapping them as Crowley did by putting false things in his books deliberately uh, to catch the unwary and thinking he was very clever doing that because that is highly irresponsible. That's not a spiritual teacher. That's a, you know, a fake guru, a, yes. like a dark guru. So, um, no, my, my I was very um, attracted to the pastoral, as you Know, with some of my acoustic albums, I mean, I've done rock albums, but I've done acoustic ones, and I've also put a lot of magical um, and occulty themes in both uh, witchy sort of pagan themes in with the acoustic stuff, and also with my heavier uh, tracks. Um, but there's, I, I don't see any correlation with when with far right people. I think that that is probably from 
um, conjuring up, sort of appealing to a, a sentiment, you know, of the time that the older times were better when we were all white English people and we were all a pure race, all that rubbish, which I yes. think is extremely dangerous. And, um, you know, uh, and it's, it's just a false myth. What I'm doing is, is I'm looking back to this um, idyllic uh, time um, because it's a, a, I'm looking at a beautiful landscape or something, you know, and a simpler way of life. Uh, that's how I suppose that steampunk thing I got uh, tied in with too. You know, you're you're looking at an alternative reality. You know what reality is about, but you don't want to write about it. We leave that to Paul Weller and people who do it very well. You know, and the yes. political thing. So my thing is to, is fantasy, if you like, historical supernatural fantasy, and the past um, wrapped up in a sort of uh, you know, this sort of Edwardian thing. With the see, my serial killers tend to be Doctor Cream. Uh, Jack the Ripper, these Victorian gentlemen of the night, um, the real serial killers, uh, you know, are sickening and disturbing. So that has always been my way. Of, I, I tackle some relevant themes, but I always do it in this, I won't say comic strip way exactly, but somebody once described my music as gothic rockers cartoon, which I think wasn't bad at all. But um, <laughs> And it's more like these these comics, horror comics I used to read when I was a kid. So, you know, House of Mystery, I don't know if you remember them, and the House of Secrets and all this and ghosts and stuff. So it's all this lurid colour, which is in my music, as well as it, it was in those comic strips. And the lyrics, which are very literate, if I may say so. So I'm telling a story, I'm sketching a character out in quite um, detail, but very concisely, you know, again, in these two, three minute songs. And having a bit of fun at it, not always that serious, because I think that... That's quite lacking in a lot of music. People take themselves far too seriously. And not everybody wants to listen to music that's taking itself far too seriously because, as you say, you you outgrow certain bands after a while. And I used to love ACDC and um, somebody you mentioned, I can't remember a minute ago, and um, I stopped listening to them because I realised this is sort of adolescent music. You know, OK, I was still listening to it when I was 40 but because I thought it was great and it is great. But after, after you've heard it 30 times, as Stephen King once said, I think, now how many times do you want to hear, you know, Back in Black or Highway to Hell? You know, yes. you want to get on with writing your next story or whatever it is. You know, this is for people who, you know, they're only 20, so they've got their whole life ahead of them so they can listen to this stuff. For the rest of us, OK, we've heard it 30 times. What else is there out there? I think that's that's the thing. Always to be insatiably curious and hungry for new things. I, th I think that's a very healthy sort of yes. attitude. That's why I don't dwell on, on the past, even though I'm obviously happy to talk about it because that's your speciality. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's always interesting. I've indulged you. you. <laughs> uh, yes, I know. But Sorry. You, you mentioned supernatural. Did you mm. did you say you had a moment that you know, was a kind of a, a life? Oh, I've had lots of moments. I had out-of-body experiences when I was a child, and that taught me straight away that... Um, I had no interest in, in in worrying about whether there was life after death or not, because clearly there was another another us, another true person hiding inside our physical body, if you like. And those experiences carried on into adulthood. I could feel myself going out of my body, and I was fully conscious that this was not a dream and so on. I won't go into all that, but that's in some of my books, and uh, it's really another subject. But yeah. yes, I had... Sorry, I had, I had a lot of experiences. My my mother um, was very psychic, and she had lots of experiences, some some to do with me, where she would tell me something was going to happen, and it did. Um, it's just too many. I mean, I wrote a lot of books uh, with a lot of material in them that I had personally experiences, experienced, or you know, somebody in in the family 
had experienced very strange and wonderful things. But they, I was always writing these books to take the fear out of the unknown. Um, because a lot of people are fascinated, but they're frightened by it because the media has made it a frightening thing. Instead of saying, exploring yourself is the only way to find out, you know, what, who you truly are, and but do it in a safe way, you know, in a common sense way. I know that sounds like a contradiction in terms, doing psychic things in a common sense way. But if you do them um, in a healthy environment, say with in a meditation group or something where everybody is there for a positive reason and not doing it in some uh, sort of magic group where you've got this this ego uh, guru as the center of it who wants to feel he's in control or he or she is in control of the group and and, and you do things and and they say oh yes uh, this means such and such and you're in their thrall and yeah, that's a dangerous thing to be in so yes i've i've, I've always uh, practiced um my inner explorations if you want to call them that in a positive controlled environment and I've become more and more confident, less and less anxious about about doing so. And I'm confident enough to teach other people, which I have done. Um, and the more you do these things, the more you trust your intuition. And the more you get, there was one instant, I'll tell you one instant, if you want, which was once I was, I, I was closing my eyes uh, some Sunday afternoon and um, I saw a lot of blue flashing lights. Um, I couldn't uh, figure out what it was all about. If I asked, you know, where are we? What's going on? I got no answer. And there was no feeling, no emotion behind it. Just a lot of blue flash. It was a scene as if I was looking out the window, except mm. my eyes were closed. Anyway, later that day, my parents phoned and invited my children to join them for a drive. And I said, no, thanks, not this time. And that was the day they had a near fatal accident. And of course, if my children had been in the car, you know, uh, I hate to think what would have happened, but there were loads of blue flashing lights and there was the air ambulance and everything. You know? Right. So that's the sort of thing that can happen. But it doesn't, you see, you, you can't draw a, a conclusion from that. You can't say, so what does that signify? Which is what I did when I had my out-of-body experiences. I, I would always say, that's very interesting. And I know it's real, but what does it signify? I want to know more. And the, the thing is, there is no real, uh, you're not going to get all the answers on this side of life. You seem to get more experiences, more profound experiences, more insights. And you, I just put them in my back pocket. I don't make a statement about them. I've had this experience. Therefore, I can found this new religion, you see, which says we must do this and we must not do that. You simply take these experiences and say, that was very interesting. And now I uh, understand a bit more. What, what else you know, can, I, can I experience? What else can I find out? What, how, what does this mean? And I think mm. when, when, you, when you start on this journey um, to self discovery or self-realization uh, things like as you say that the far right and all these other petty um sort of hatreds and prejudices and resentments and regrets and all that they all vanish you dispel all these because you're you're you know you're on a different trip you're not hung up with um, possessions you're not hung up with how other people perceive you you're not judging other people you let them get on with their thing whether they're on a journey or whether they're not is their business and so on you know it's a very healthy mental sort of attitude to have and i think that probably helps my music because i think if i've been solely uh, obsessed with am i making it and is this record selling and all that um you know i probably would have quit 20 years ago it's because i've got a more balanced um mental attitude and that i'm also open and receptive to all these other uh, influences and I could love all this find all this other music I'm continually looking for other music you know I was into opera I was into 
all sorts of things. I haven't been into folk music. I haven't been into some of these sort of things, I'd admit. But, you know, I went in, into reggae. I went into all these other things. Uh, as I say, um, sort of Rammstein and all the and Muse and all these other kinds of bands. And it never occurred to me that I shouldn't be listening to this because I was X years old and it wasn't made for me. It was just music, you know, and it was either good or it wasn't. It either appealed to me or it didn't. And if it appealed to me, boom, you know, what difference yes. that, uh, how, how old I was or or anything you know and where did your I'm just going back slightly steampunk mm. this was one of oh, those yes. subjects that you've you know you were sort of the, the the you know the beginning of this kind of movement weren't you when did well it wasn't called, sorry it wasn't called that I I recorded the the first steampunk song if I could be so presumptuous in uh, when was it about 86 I recorded the great Edwardian air raid yes. and I put it on the back side the b side of a 12-inch EP because I felt it was it was so um, um, personal or, or or different that it wouldn't appeal to people. So I put it on there thinking, well, if they don't like it, nobody's going to be annoyed because it's on the it's <clears> the fourth <throat> track on a on a 12-inch EP, and it became one of my most popular tracks. Uh, so it shows I've got no <laughs> judgment of my own critical judgment of my own material, but. I'd always been interested in in H.G. Wells, you see. My father used to read me these stories when I was small, and I, I, I found a love for that language, the language particularly, and the world, the Edwardian world, which is then uh, spoiled by, you know, either the Martians coming or, or something violent or something strange happening to an ordinary person, like the case of Davidson's eyes where he can see another dimension, these sort mm. of things. I found those intriguing, and his language was beautiful. So the two things together... Um, I think it's it, it that was in my mind when I was writing my songs. So of course that was the kind of subject that I would write about. And so to me it was never steampunk because steampunk didn't exist at the time. But in retrospect, people said, "Oh, that's that's proto steampunk," which is fair enough. Um, I don't know where steampunk really came from. You see, because I can't imagine that they also had a love of H.G. Wells and Jules Verne, and it must have come from science fiction and not from the, the where I was coming from, but I was sort of adopted by them. And then, uh, you know, I've never written songs specifically for a steampunk audience. I, I came up with a song called Captain Nemo, for example, because I like the idea of, by the way, I never liked Vern, you see. I always felt he, he didn't have the, the wistfulness of, of um, or the, the, the feeling that Wales had. He was more describing... Um, the actual vegetation and, and the wonders of the, the scientific world and the, and the material world, um, which was fine, but it didn't appeal to me. So Captain Nemo appealed to me and other characters like that because they were, again, this lost thing. It's this, this feeling of this loner who isn't loved by the world, misunderstood, and he sails off in his own world, if you like, in the Nautilus, um, a romantic, a doomed romantic character this is the sort of thing that appealed and that obviously um was sort of uh taken up by the steampunk uh people who mm. still haven't invited me to any of their steampunk festivals i've been invited to metal festivals i've played there many times so um i don't consider myself steampunk because nobody's ever invited me to play before a steampunk audience as such yeah Yes, absolutely. <laughs> it's very strange. But then you've recently, I mean, you have written a lot of books and obviously music, because you, were you once managed by June Boland? I was June Boland and her then business partner, David Enthoven, who had been EG Records, who had managed ELP, King Crimson, 
and T-Rex. Oh, and Roxy Music. That was, right. Uh, and later Squeeze, much later. In fact, that, that was just, Squeeze was just after me, just after they'd dropped me or found they couldn't sign me to a major because I didn't have a band at the time, you know. Yes. And what was it like sort of, you know, writing about such an iconic character who's had such a big impact on virtually everybody who's played music like Mark Boland? Well, I didn't expect at the time I was writing, I didn't I didn't uh, know that he had had such an influence. To me, it was a personal um, crusade to restore his uh, name, his credibility to people who had misunderstood him and dismissed him as a teeny bop idol of the 70s. You see, I, I mean, I, as I said, I was even just a bit too young to have caught his peak. I, I started discovering his music in about 73 and then it was Tyrannosaurus Rex. So um, I felt this was really my my personal, um, uh, whatever you want to call it, a thing in life to um, to tell people how wonderful he was and how wonderful his, his music was. Yes? At the same time, obviously, you know, revealing the flaws in his character that led to his decline. Mm. Um, and I found him a fascinating character, and, it, and I like to interview people uh, who had worked with him. There was Herbie Flowers, who was the bass player, who had also played on Walk on the Wild Side from Lou Reed. And, and also, these, so I met these other people through the bowl and thing. That became my sort of portal into the music journalism, if you like. And then, because I wrote a book about him, uh, I wrote other books about other people, and eventually I learned my craft as a writer. Mm. And because I'd written the books, I then wrote better lyrics because I was able to tell a story more succinctly. If, if I look back on my very early lyrics, even though some of the songs are liked very much by the people who like my music, for example, things like Captain Blood, now I, I, I look at that song and I say, but that's really an awful lyric. You know, uh, what was I thinking at the time? Okay, I was 20 at the time, but now, you know, I, I'd, I'd, I'd show that character in his environment. I'd conjure up that period a, a lot more effectively. And I wasn't able to do that then because I was, you know, immature and not in full grasp of my uh, my craft. And that's something that that came. Oh, I'm quite a late developer, I think. Actually, I mean, I'm 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 still I won't say learning, but I'm still d- developing and growing and and finding I can express myself more succinctly, more effectively than I could, you know, 20 years ago or something. And of course, I can do different. Uh, I would say formats, different kinds of music, like the like the ballet or orchestral music I wrote and so on. Um, oh, I did an electronic album recently called the Anubis uh, Engine, which is like a sort of steampunk meets Stargate thing. It's all electronic with narration in between, not songs. And these sort of things uh, I wouldn't have done when I was much younger. I couldn't, I couldn't have known how I would even approach such a thing. So... Yes. You know, it, this this is what's exciting. I'm remain I'm I'm remaining excited by the th- possibilities, by the discovering I can do certain things that I couldn't have done before. I challenge myself. Well, oh, that's a good idea. How do I do that? So instead of reading about it, I just you know it's trial and error and bash a few buttons and see how what comes out. And I think somebody else might say, well, you know, I'm not going to try that because it won't work or it won't sell or my record company doesn't want it or whatever. And that's terribly sad. You know, that's why a lot of bands last for three albums or so and then and then give up. Yes. Did you they lose this thing, this childlike it. thing, if you want to call it that. Or in the case of David Bowie with Black Star, there is a sense of sort of, I suppose, not desperation, but a sense of 
ending, isn't it? And he sort of brings this together for his last album. Mm. I just, I just wonder, you know, that obviously gets you into a different state, doesn't it? Unlike when you're younger and you mm. have no sort of health, health concerns. Yes, but there's also something else which we haven't touched on, which is um, I had a good friend called Knox who was in a band called The Vibrators. They were on uh, Top of the Pots with um, something lover. I can't remember what it was. And um, he had told me that when he was signed to CBS, um, he had signed as a as the band, I think, or as an individual. I can't remember which. And the other members, uh, I think they just signed as individuals. That's what it was. And he'd signed as the band because it was his band. And when they split up, he was left with a debt, which was something crazy like £100,000. He, he couldn't work it off because he'd need to form another band and have more hits. So he um, was reduced, if I can say that, to doing, you know, uh, de- home decorating for people, you know, with this huge debt on his shoulders of 100,000 or more, whatever it was, you know. And that sort of thing, you don't, you don't hear about these sort of things, but that's what kills off a lot of um, bands and a lot of creative people. These, these shenanigans that the record companies do uh, even if they're legally entitled to, people get in, in themselves, in their enthousi- youthful enthusiasm, into all sorts of uh, debt and trouble. Um, and you, you never hear about it. Obviously, you know, it's, it's probably um, against the solicitor's advice to speak about it, but it's, you know, and that's why these people disappear a lot after having hits. And that's why I was saying at the beginning, really, I'm so glad that I, I wasn't signed, even though I felt that was the only way to be. You have to be signed by EMI or you're not, you're not a real artist, you know? And only now, really, in the last 10 years or so, do I realize that would have absolutely killed me. I would have produced all these albums and different kinds of albums because, you know, somebody, be, I'd be, I wouldn't be able to sleep at night, you know, for one reason or another. Yes, absolutely. No, I've come across a few people who, when the band finished, mm. they suddenly got presented with a massive tax bill. And oh, in one have. case, the, um, the, the members were all living abroad and he was the only one responsible. Oh. He was responsible for picking up the whole debt and having to do it. Yes, it was. It was. And then a few others who just ended up selling all their equipment. So they, they oh. had no band, they had no equipment, no home, yeah. and spent a year and they cut their hair and wandered around the streets oh, as, yeah. a, as a sort of, you know, what, what, yes, almost <laughs> kind of with that suicidal feeling of oh, my life is over. So there is, yeah, I have heard quite a lot of horrendous mm. stories or people have just signed that contract and didn't realise what they were signing. So they mm. basically don't own any of their music and they'll never own it and they'll never be able to sort of get any yeah. money for it. So that that story, I think, is kind of something that blew my mind because it was kind of even now it can be a bit tricky because it's like who owns the you know the master tapes who owns Mm. that recording who owns the publishing and the copyright and all those things and if somebody hasn't really studied the small print they're just um they're going to absolutely get hammered aren't they so yeah especially especially i was just going to say uh, that's why i always paid for the recordings that i would walk out with the tapes and they would be mine physically I, I didn't know it was going to go this way, you know. I, I was, and I was looking to be signed because I thought that's what you do. But in retrospect, I now see that I've got the rights to all the songs I've ever recorded, all the albums. And even if they haven't sold a fraction of what they would have done, and I, you know, I can only wonder what I might have had, you know. Um, I can't, I can't be sorry that I did it because, in the end, um. 
I've got, it's the music that matters and the fact that, that, that I created the music that I wanted to, I'm still creating the music that I want to do and I, I own it and can give it to people that I trust or that I feel are genuine and that are going to do something with it. And if they don't, then they've tried and I'm not going to be, um, um, you know, uh, upset or disappointed if, if, if they put their best effort in, effort in and, and people aren't that interested because this is a very much a speciality in music. I always say my, my music's like a handmade chocolate, you know, some people like it and appreciate it and other people just want to buy a block of Cadbury's or what have you and scoff it. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. But that's quite interesting because I did an interview with Miles Copeland, who managed mm. the police and also IRS. And he he said the first album was the police. He'd, you know, he'd financed it and just took it to yes. A&M. He licensed and, it, yes. And just said, Sorry. you know, basically, this is a no brainer because we've, you know, I've paid everything, but you can put it out. So you don't mm. even have to look at your accountant and yes. get the money. It's here. And they said, well, and that's that's a, that's a good thing to do. And obviously, but he he was a very savvy person who knew a little mm. few tricks, as yeah. they say. But then, yeah, so in the last, I mean, since lockdown, did mm -hmm. how did lockdown affect you in, in the kind of creative process, you know, once that sort of suddenly came March 2020? Did you did you look at it as a period where you could sort of focus much more or did you find it difficult to find? It, it, was, it was a mixed thing, uh, experience. What happened was um, I was very, I just started a new album with my band and we were close to finishing it um but i could do the additional instruments in my home studio which is what i did and it meant that i couldn't go abroad and that that was the 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 frustrating thing for me because so much was happening in italy at that time um and i couldn't play gigs i couldn't record there i couldn't meet all my friends there i couldn't do anything uh, and that lasted about 3 years i think I only went back last year, actually, 2019. That's when the ballet was premiered and I played a heavy metal festival in Den Denmark for the second time and we played another gig in Italy. So that was very frustrating from that point of view, but it didn't stop me doing anything um, here. In fact, I think I probably took the opportunity, if I remember rightly, to do things like the ballet or other other projects because I could record them at home. Uh, in fact, I think I did a, a solo album, um, which was acoustic, but with lots of interesting uh, classical instruments that I played. And I did all that at home. And that was immensely satisfying and exciting and pleasurable. And it's probably the, the, the album I'm most satisfied with is coming out this month, actually. It's called Weird Tales of an Antiquarian. And th that includes those extended narrative songs I was telling about based on M.R. James and so on, and H.P. Lovecraft uh, stories. So. For people like me who were self-sufficient, um, it didn't it didn't affect me. Obviously, it affected um, you know where we could go, and uh, we were quite isolated um, and very wary of being close to other people. I wouldn't go to shops. I didn't obviously go to an airport. And um, but other than that, no, it it didn't really affect me. It was just a, a quite an unnatural uh, experience to be pretty much isolated for the best part of three years but being a quite a solitary person um it, it didn't really um affect me unduly no yes because I, I just look at your band camp page because a lot of this is, is I this thought you were going to say looking at my bank statement <laughs> I thought, oh no what's he going to reveal now <laughs> <laughs> da, 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 da. no just your band camp page so yeah. this is a place that you obviously put a lot of material but a lot of your kind of 
unreleased stuff and acoustic and live performances as well. Is this where where you go and put your archives mostly? Yes, this is the stuff that I've I put um, the albums that I recorded before I met the Italians, who began financing or partly financing albums, finishing off albums I recorded here. So I felt I didn't have the right to put those up. So my most recent albums are not on there. But all my back catalogue, to which I still own the rights, as I said, I put up there. So that's my my shop window, my showcase, my portfolio, whatever you want to call it. And it gives me a great um, uh, place to put unreleased songs, which more or less are songs that, that I record at home to a high standard. and um, I can, I mean, I've, I've got funny songs like uh, My Dog is Hooked on Cocaine, and uh, as well as more serious songs, of course. But I can record anything I like, anything I fancy. I can, uh, songs I could uh, wrote for other people, like uh, the songs I wrote for uh, Dave Cousins of the Straubs, or a song I wrote for Peter Hamill. Um, all, all these sort of um, experiments and, and little projects can all be uploaded to Bandcamp and therefore I can feel it's released you know it's yes. not physically released but it's out there anybody can have it and I I have all unburdened myself of all these projects I've completed them all I have the satisfaction of that and feeling that they're out there in a form which is more than presentable because they're not rough demos they're very highly polished demos most of them and um, people can enjoy them and um, I can then move on to something else so it's a great little uh, channel um, so another, so it's a, yet another thing I learned from Boland because there were a lot of radio sessions that he used to do for Peel and other people, and um, of course other other people like Bowie were doing BBC sessions as well at the time. Um, but this sort of gave me the idea, and and, and um, from Hawkwind, um, Brock, Dave Brock, yes. he puts out a little CDs of um, unreleased uh, tapes and whatnot as well as live stuff. So I feel, you know, this is a legitimate thing to do. And it's a fun thing for an artist to do. And an artist has to be able to put stuff out. Otherwise, they get <laughs> musically constipated. You know, if you, if you record all this stuff and you stick it in the drawer, what's the point of it? Some people do that because, you know, they don't feel they have to share mm. it with the public, if you like. Um, it's my guitarist is, is this way. He records lots of wonderful stuff and sticks it in a drawer. And he says, well, that's fine. I enjoy doing it. I don't need to release it. But I feel... The, quite the opposite that I want people to hear it I th I'm proud of it I think it's funny it's exciting whatever and it's, some of it's beautiful and I want to share it because there's no point it being on my computer or in my multi-tracker or whatever then it's, it's dead to be honest what why did I bother doing it you know so yes. but part but th this has always been part of the being a musician thing is you make music and you perform either you perform live I think if I didn't perform live I would feel that as a bit of a cheat. So, I, And then when I go on stage, I find I love it and I'm telling funny stories in between songs and whatnot, and I love to perform before an audience. But I'm also happy to be this private person recording in my own little studio and putting stuff out on Bandcamp. Uh, and, you know, it's there for those people who want more. And some people are quite uh, you know, enthusiastic to have more, as long as it's not more of the same. That's yes. it. So that's there's always that challenge in it. See that that if I put something up there, it's got to be uh, valid in its own way. It mustn't be a repeat of anything else. And so I'm validating stuff all the time, if you like, by by putting it up there, by being my own record company, being my own A and R manager. 
you know, and yeah. uh, keeping that objective self-critic. I mean, my own um, most uh, severe critic, if you like, um, and I think if it passes my old grey whistle test, then other people should hopefully like it. But I don't expect everybody to love it because that would be, you know, I don't love as you. What was it? I can't even remember what the album. Oh, oh yes, the um, the um, the Scottish folkies, um, the Incredible String Band. Yes. yes. See, not everybody loves the Incredible String Band, and we just have to accept that, don't we? No, and sometimes hopefully they do. It. But then you go through an age, don't you, when you're younger, mm. especially if. Um, feeling like you'd like it because that might mean that you're a much more enigmatic and interesting person. But then as you get older, you don't care anymore about what people think. Well, I've you. never suffered from that particular That's um, very wise. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> but you used to love, you know, didn't you say in the 80s, love the work of Jim Jamoose or Betty Blue, and you think this is going to make me more sophisticated and relaxed and cool. Well, I, I never I never knew about them, so I'm, I'm, I'm okay. I mean, I did write for some funny pop magazines in, in the 80s, I remember. I interviewed some some oh, I can't even remember who they were. Uh, well, there was Aztec Camera and all those kind of people, but I didn't like them. I did it because it was a job. Yes. And um, as I say, some of those people I, I I found absolutely charming, like Pete Wiley and and Mick Hutton. Others like Kim Wilde and um, <laughs> Sting were completely obnoxious. But there you go. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's nice to have had that experience. So, with your band, is this the the band that you did? 13, 13, Mockingbird Lane and um, yes. and White Worm. And That's then, right, yes. But the Spectral Gate, this was just you and Mick, was it, together? That's right, Mick, my, my guitarist together, we decided... Well, I knew that he was an exceptional psych guitarist and that he, he was a multi-instrumentalist and he had his own little studio, his own little bunker, as he calls it. And I just encouraged... I thought, this is a... I would say a, a waste, but, you know, he was the one putting all this stuff in his drawer. And I said, you must have um, some unfinished tapes or what have you, or, the, or ideas, or why don't we do an album together? And I thought he was going to do a sort of a witchy folk type album, basically acoustic. And he came up with this sort of space rock stuff. And I reverse engineered the tracks. I, I, I found the tempo he was using and the key he was using. And then I would write a song in that key and at that tempo so that we could cross fade. And either my song would be the first part and his would instrumental thing would come out of it to extend it. Or he would uh, introduce the song with his long instrumental interlude. And then I would have a song coming out of that. And it just worked out absolutely beautifully, surprisingly mm. effective. It got great reviews. See, again, another thing where I, I went for something peculiar and idiosyncratic and very personal and people loved it but if i did something more um i don't know straightforward they, they might not be um so surprised or whatever so i mean I, I just did i've always done what i wanted to do uh but i was always prepared to put all that work in i've never considered it work it's always fun making music whether it's writing or recording it's only after you've finished an album you you listen to it and you think my goodness i spent 3 months on that and there's 65 different you know ideas in in this thing and how did i do that <laughs> i mean it might not be technically difficult but you think the time i spent it's like one of those painters you know doing the ones with all the little dots uh, I can't remember Pois or some of the French style, oh, you know, yes, yeah, all yeah. made up of little darts. You think, God, this guy spent months, if not years, doing this. But when you stand back, there's this beautiful picture, you know. And yes. uh, that, that's that's why I keep doing it. But I, I try not to think of what I'm going to have to do to this thing when I start. 
um, because it is all just fun and exploring and and you surprise yourself all the time otherwise you you know may well, it's all this what the what Maslow the psychiatrist psychologist calls them peak experience you know you get so many I'm so privileged to get peak experiences you know, every day or every other day or whatever it is by hitting the right notes and creating this particular effect or or this melodic line I wasn't expecting which contrasts with another you know and you think crikey what what fun I'm having you know <laughs> um this is this is why I'm doing this it's nothing to do with with getting reviews or, or recognition. It's it's a personal, well, it's like doing any kind of art, isn't it? It's just a personal um, play as an adult. You're playing, it's, you know, as, as you would have so you, you've got a bit more idea of what, what you're doing and what you're trying to achieve. And then at the end, you stand back and you've got something really quite extraordinary or beautiful or strange. Yes. And you think, and the great thing is, of course, recording, whoever invented that, you know, this is this is going to last forever. I don't have to perform this live. I don't have to play all these parts. You do it, and it's fixed, and you've created this this artifact. And uh, I, I had no idea when I went to see uh, Stardust, and that would be the day that, that this was the end of that road. You know, I thought you wrote songs on a guitar, you performed it with a band like you saw in the film. You know, one, two, three, go, and we're all playing yes. together, and that's it. I never imagined you had to actually create this this um, project or whatever and you put it together and this i suppose that's what came out maybe of listening to tubular bells all those years ago and and things you hear what one guy did you know he played all these parts now i'm not technically proficient like that musically speaking mm. but i can play enough four or five notes together without fumbling and that's all i need as you know these little counterpoints and counterparts and things in fact that's what i loved about rap if you don't mind me going on because i <laughs> what i heard in rap what my children i think couldn't understand because they just heard see they just get the impression like most people do of the finished article and they think but it's rap dad how can you possibly like that or hip-hop i said well listen to it there's all these clever ideas in there there's little phrases that these people are not are not dumb you know they're not they might want to appear that way you know, to, to be you know uh, appear to uh, appeal to a certain uh, fan base or whatever but really, they're very clever musicians. You listen to what they're doing, or maybe the producer did this. It doesn't matter. But there's ideas in this. There's counter melodies. There's, you know, it's not just put press the drum machine button and rap over the top of it. And even that is pretty clever a lot mm. of the time because it, it they may they may also not be so conscious of how clever they are. Uh, some of them are very conscious of it and like to tell you, but some of them don't. They just have a, a great sense of humor. It's usually this humor that that's most effective, you know. And um, a, a, a natural way with a phrase and so on. So I think, you know, I'm, I find if I find that in a type of music, I don't care what it's called. I don't, I don't care who made it. I don't care who it was meant to appeal to or who it's marketed to. If I like it, I won't say it's my music, but you know, it, it goes on my list, and I'll keep listening to it, and I'll get yes. something great out of it. That's it. Which is amazing. So, so on that, I think that's I'm normal, don't you? I think it's very normal. Right. Yes, no, it, it. Yeah, I mean, I'm. I must admit, you know, though I did say very early on about you know being, you can only be 16 once and that music. You know, I I also realise that actually I'm always excited when I hear another song, a new song that you just play and play for a couple of mm. weeks, constantly, and then you just think actually I've had enough, and then another song comes along and mm. I play that to death, and so there is that sense of always, and that's what you know I mentioned earlier, John Peel had that that sort of ability to to pre present 
interesting pieces. I think I really struggled when John Peel died, not knowing where to go to sort of find mm. things which were, were quite new and it, you know, like just happening at that moment. So just going forward though, what have your what's your next year looking like project-wise and either writing or music or performance? Oh, well, I'm doing an album uh, in July with Andy Ellison, who's recording some of the songs that I originally wrote for his John, John's Children reunion album. And I wrote these about 10 years or more ago. And we've always been talking about recording together. And it was only recently he got back in touch with me and proposed that we finally get down to this. So they're going to be my songs that are particularly suited to his style, which means the more upbeat, slightly whimsical um, rock songs. Mm -hmm. he'll, he'll be singing. I'll be playing the Mark Boland part, which is basically providing the songs, playing some guitar and singing backing vocals. Um, and it will also include some songs that I wrote for the Velvet Underground. Um, when I was in touch with them in the mid 80s and they had an album out called VU, it was an unreleased album. And I interviewed them for a Sunday newspaper, actually. I interviewed Nico Sterling Morrison and Maureen Tucker and asked them after, after I finished the interview, being professional, I wouldn't say beforehand, I told them who I was and if they would possibly be interested in, in working with me. And they said yes, to my great astonishment. So I wrote some songs for them. So this album that I'll be putting out uh, with Andy uh, as co-producer and lead vocalist will include these songs. And that should be very interesting because that should be going to a decent sized indie label. Uh, it might go to Cherry Red, who I was on once, but haven't been on since. And that could raise my profile a bit as well as being an awful lot of fun and showing that we are 16 after yes. all, again and again. I don't know how many times I've been 16, actually, I won't go into that. Um, otherwise, I've all these projects lined up, the MR James um, songs, the electronic album, all in the pipeline, finished, waiting to be released. I think I've got about four of these albums, I think, and plus the one that we did just before COVID that I just went back only this weekend to uh, edit and redo some vocals. So I've got about four albums, I think, completed sitting there. Um, and... Uh, there's there's a lot more to come it's just what really whatever i i feel like doing next without yes. repeating myself so whatever takes my fancy if you like yeah. whatever pops into my head and grips me and i feel this is a great idea and i've just got to see this through because i always see things through that was the other thing i've never abandoned a project um, i've always seen it through even if you know it might be some years later uh, in the case of lair of the white worm i sat on it for about three years i couldn't think of what what themes to write about. It was a very extraordinary experience for me to be like that because I usually uh, go into the studio with my batch of songs and write the lyrics more or less while I'm recording, not in the studio, but you know during that period. And then it's all done by the time I've, I've been to the last session and mixed it. But um, it's been it's been very different these years, I suppose, because I don't want to repeat myself. I want to find something quite extraordinary to write about. And I have to find the right thing. It's not a case of writer's block exactly on, on those projects, but um, so you just have to find, I mean, I tried all sorts of things. I tried Greek, Greek mythology, Norse mythology, and I actually wrote and recorded the lyrics and then, um, and then abandoned them because I thought, no, this is good, but it's not what I want. Right. And um, same thing happened with Captain Nemo, I remember. It's going to be about um, one of Napoleon Bonaparte's generals who became a teacher, went into you know, anonymity, 
and you, I, I like that idea that he was a famous person in French history who was actually just teaching in a small school, you know, and um, the pupils probably didn't even know who he was. He probably had another name. I can't remember if he assumed another name. I'm talking about Marshall Ney, by the way. Mm-hmm. And um, I, wrote a, I sat up all night writing this lyric because I had to, to record the vocal the next day. And after, you know, five o'clock in the morning, it, 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 it was perfectly okay, but it was nothing original or nothing special. The idea was very good. But I hadn't got it. And who's to say how you, that elusive thing comes? So, um, and then I think uh, an hour later, I was standing outside the house, uh, the sun coming up, and I thought, oh, Captain Nemo. And, you know, in 10 minutes, I'd written the new lyric, and it fitted perfectly. And it, and it, it was the right subject. It just, it just had that spark. And you just have to know... Um, when you've hit the right thing and also you have to be prepared to admit when you've got the wrong thing where it's competent but it's not anything special um yes. that, that was that's something so, so that's quite it's not always as straightforward and as simple you know as it perhaps was at the beginning i don't know why this is why this happens but you've got to be prepared for this and and um keep you know keep looking and not and not um just accept that something you've got is good enough yeah yes absolutely and did you say you're also doing any projects with that um singer from Shelley Ann Orphan was that a project well there's nothing there's nothing definite with him but um when he was in the studio in Italy phoned me and they talked to me about something I can't remember what it was at the time, and I subsequently wrote a song for him and also the drummer of the cure that he was working with was that so Horace? I think it is yes Yes, they, they, those two were doing an album together in the studio in Italy at the time. And uh, I wrote a song for them. And whether they'll record it or not, I don't know. Yes. Um, but these, these artists are there. They, they sort of gravitate to, to that label because it's a very encouraging label for all kinds of music, including abstract. Um, Marcus Stockhausen is one of their uh, artists, for example. Um, and so there's a, a very encouraging um, uh, circle there, if you like. And that's why I feel, you know, I could write virtually any, any type of music and at least they would be receptive to listening to it, whether they would actually do it or not is something else. If they don't do it, I'll do it. But yeah. that's a very, you know, I, I could never have done that if I'd signed to a major label and been stuck with them. Or, I mean, I'd probably be, be too disheartened to do music uh, after a certain experience anyway. You know, mm-hmm. so this is the sort of thing that um, that can come if if you don't get embroiled in the the normal conventional way of you know being a recording artist. Yes, and do you have any um, books? Have you got any books that you're writing at the moment? No, I stopped writing books a few years ago. My parents were getting elderly, and I didn't want to commit myself to a three month book that I might have to drop suddenly. Um, no. And I'd also had, had enough. I mean, I'd written about eight Nazi books, and uh, <laughs> which was interesting up to a point, but gets very, very depressing. And um, and a number of serial killer books. There's a, there's a, a criminal profiling book and a forensic forensics book. A uh, number of, as I said, mind, body, spirit books. I wrote ghost books and all this sort of stuff. So I felt. I mean, I could have gone on and on, but um, it was a. I won't say it was a thankless task, but it, it wasn't my own fiction it was all yes. non-fiction and and it was you know quite satisfying on the rest of it but it was a bit like homework you know um 
and I, so I, I changed to novels. I wrote two novels, which I'm still trying to get published. And that's much more in, related to, in relation to the music that I'm making. And um, one of them even in, includes a couple of characters and situations from my songs into the, this fantasy murder novel thing. So, uh, but that, I found that that was also just as um, a com competitive cutthroat business as the, and very, you know, very competitive business as, as music business to get, you know, fiction published. So I stopped that and went back to music because I can do an album in X weeks, whereas, uh, you know, a novel is a six month um, commitment. And of course, until it's actually finished, it's useless. Mm -hmm. With an album, you've got a collection of songs and you can always use those songs if you don't complete the album, though I never have done that. But yes. with a novel, the novel is actually valueless until you put the last full stop on the page after 100,000, 150,000 words, you know, and... Uh, it's quite a different thing. I did it as an as a, uh, exercise in self-discipline, if you like, to, because there's one thing to talk about a novel. It's another one to actually finish it. And I did two of them and a book of short stories. And I felt I've proven that to myself. I've given myself the best chance of getting published. If they don't get published, there's no point doing another one because it will probably suffer the same fate. Either you've got it or you haven't got it. Yes. And um, so I went back to music. And, and in music, I can do... A number of different projects like the electronic album that i probably wouldn't have done if i'd been writing a novel and that'd be a shame i'd rather have these musical things because to me they're more well i keep using the word beautiful but it's you know it's it's as much as i love the sound of words and creating images with words um because really my songs are prose you know set to words greg lake said this once which i can't believe because i used to listen to him when i was a kid he said oh, post post um uh, songs like short stories set to music, which I think was very, very um, perceptive of him. Yes. And so I, I've always, it was a natural thing to go into writing fiction because I, I love words so much. But having the music is the very personal thing um, that can't be replicated in a way nobody else could do it, even another musician. It had, because it's music from inside me, if you like. Whereas the, the, the non-fiction books I was writing to answer your question, any, anybody could have written that who's a competent writer. You get, as I say, it's like homework. You get the books you need or the resources on, on the web or what have you, and you tell the story of so-and-so or the life of so-and-so or the rise and fall of the Nazis or whatever it happens to be, or you gather these ghost stories together. So anybody could have done that, and I, I felt that wasn't a personal uh, artistic um, project enough like the music was so I, and I'd done 55 books I think that was I felt that I'd done enough mm. and um you know uh and I wanted to uh, as I get older I, I wanted to devote what little time I have left to you know any other uh, musical uh, creations I could possibly come up with yes blimey this is it's all good this is very exciting well look <laughs> um, well thank you paul thank you ever so much for giving me your time for this this has been well, thank you very much for asking me for inviting me and um yes it's been lovely i've never heard anybody else talk about um that will be the day or stardust <laughs> before actually it's always one of those tumbleweed moments that no uh. one's ever seen but yes you you've definitely and just let's just just lastly i mean there's mm. always i mean because obviously i've mentioned david bowie and you've mentioned Mark Boland. How mm. did you feel? Because, you know, it's the narrative is kind of, um, you know, David had the sophistication to then reinvent himself. Mark mm. didn't. Yes. And he's, his kind of latter work was, you know, not interesting and yes. not yes, that true. good. I mean, did you, did you sort of feel that 
you know, and in, did you find that quite interesting that how how Mark's kind of career developed, whereas David sort of went into quite a, an amazing sort of new. Well, I, I saw David as as the real artist, if you like. That is what you do if you have real creativity, originality, and drive and imagination. And Mark, love him though I did, I think was a more um, immature person, and and not and because of certain characteristics, he wasn't willing to learn new chords, as his producer said, or go into other things. He imagined that he could do these things. He boasted that he could play like, you know, Segovia or something. He actually said these crazy things and believed it, you know, and nobody really challenged him on that. So he didn't have the maturity of outlook that Bowie had, who would say, I can't do this because I haven't practiced the didgeridoo for five years like so-and-so has. So I'll hire so-and-so to play the didgeridoo, you know, and then mm -hmm. I can I can have this different sound on my album because I'm always looking for new sounds. Or I'm always looking to. Bolton mm -hmm. wasn't. He said, "I want to be a pop star. I want first and foremost. Therefore, I mustn't disappoint the kids," as he would say. Uh, I have to rewrite another version of "Get It On." I have to rewrite this. Yes, I not, must have other hits. Mm. So he was, he was um, a completely different mentality. Uh, you can't compare the two of them, although it's interesting to do so. And sadly, Boland, whose early albums, as I said, were remarkable and completely um, uh, unique and distinctive and original, all the acoustic albums I'm talking about, and then into the early electric albums like Electric Warrior and up to including, say, The Slider from 72, he, he man managed to mix bubblegum with... The Lewis Carroll sort of uh, fantasy element, and and the, you know, from I am the Walrus as well was in there. You know that sort of thing, and that was the peak. After that, he tailed off because he was repeating himself. He was into drugs and alcohol, which mixed up his played mind games. You know, uh, with his brain mangled his brain cells basically. Uh, he was a great egotist. So, and then he got he he partnered up with the. Uh, um, uh, soul singer uh, Gloria Jones, um, who sort of led him into uh, funk, if you like, which didn't really work, let's say. And yes. then he got himself into this mess and tried to get out of it. And only at the very end, he tried to look, he looked back when punk was happening. And his last album, Dandy in the Underworld, in 77, 76, probably when it was recorded, he, he was back to this, hey, little girl, let me hold your hand kind of stuff, trite lyrics. I, and I, I've always found it fascinating to try and reconcile these two very distinct people that he was. You know, okay, he he may have played the hippie, but he did it very well. And he 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 wasn't well read because he was dyslexic, but his imagination was was uh, quite something. And the, mm. the acoustic songs were beautiful. The melodies he tinged out, as it, as you say, he used to tease them out of the air. With, with ease and he he mangled all these words up with these beautiful melodies and talked about satyrs and woodland nymphs and all the rest of it which you may think is a sort of Tolkien-esque um, psychedelic summer of love cliche but it worked beautifully was to me and perhaps to you the incredible string band attempted the same sort of thing with less charm mm. uh, uh, so I, I still can't 
really reconcile these two people, the self-destructive teenage um, rock star who, who simplified his music, who diluted it to such an extent that it, it lost any real appeal. And the earlier uh, little bopping imp, as they used to call him, who was full of inventiveness, energy, and uh, you know, imagination, and I, I suppose he was just somebody who, who tuned himself out of the muse, who, who became disconnected to the muse, partly because of his own ego interfered. And you have to be very receptive if you're, um, you know, being creative. You can't, you can't impose your own ego and say, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to make a number one hit now. Mm. You have to write. You have to say, I'm going to write a song now, and I want. I'm hopefully looking for this kind of song, you know, and you get into that mood, that frame of mind, and the song is comes through or whatnot, or comes to pass. But he was imposing his his expectations on it. He was, uh, and then also, as I say, all the drugs and other stuff got in, and um, and then there was the fear of um, losing face, if you like, uh, because he'd been this big star, he couldn't afford to be anything less. Whereas I think Bowie was an artist first. He didn't mm. care. I'm sure he didn't care whether he had another number one hit or not, whether he filled stadiums or not. He wanted to make the best albums he could. He wanted to work with people like Brian Eno because he he saw the possibilities, the potential. I think Boland wouldn't have worked with anybody else because he couldn't control them. He couldn't be their boss. So that's the other thing. Bowie, I think, I get the impression, was somebody who said, well, my producer is, you know, deals with this. I deal with the songs. And uh, I hire these musicians because they're the best at what they do, and they're going to bring something to this. Uh, like, uh, say, uh, Fripp, you know, Robert Fripp, mm -hmm. and, and he gives them he gives them their um, a free hand. You know, he, he maybe suggests, oh, "I want something a bit abstract here. I want a bit something like such and such." But he's not going to, you know, um, control them. Was Boland would have, you know, and he he's want to play every instrument too. He wants somebody. Someone said he he thought he was Rick Wakeman because he could play a few notes on the keyboard. You know. <laughs> it's, it's it's very much a child and an adult you, you can't you can't compare the two people yes. it's a bit sad but that's just the way he was you know yeah that's interesting yes well look this is good thank you look <laughs> oh um yes on that bombshell but look thank you ever so much and i'll and i'll send you the link and you can Please always do. use it on your yeah, uh, page and everything but thank you for your time it's been brilliant and amazing my, and, my uh, pleasure Really. Give me lots to think about in life. <laughs> anyway, take okay. care. Thanks you again. Too. Have a You're good welcome. night. Bye bye. Bye. And that, dear listener, as you um, probably could guess, is the end of the interview that was um, Paul Rowland. And uh, if you want to know any more information about his work and uh, places to go, he does have a website and also Bandcamp page as well and has got various bits and pieces on Spotify and probably other areas and books available online and, and um, on Amazon as well. Do check them out. Anyway, this is the C86 Show. David So if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. All these interviews have been archived. Yes, aren't you lucky? On Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. It's true. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.